Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Lawrence Little discusses his book, Disciples of Liberty, the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the Age of Imperialism. Lawrence Little, author of Disciples of Liberty, the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the Age of Imperialism. Why did you write your book? Well, I wrote my book to, uh, first off, I wrote as a dissertation to get it. PhD, and then um, wrote the book basically to uh, um, to uh, tell the story of African Americans at the turn of the century and how they um, reacted to uh, foreign foreign policies and global issues at the turn of the century. One of the things that happened is uh, I was um, as an undergraduate, I was working on my senior thesis. I went to college late in life, right? And I was working on my senior thesis and I ran into this war that I'd never heard of, the Philippine-American War. The teacher was talking about it. And so I got intrigued about it. And so um, I decided to, to write a, a paper about black soldiers who had served in the Philippine-American War. It happens, you know, at the turn of the century. And 5,000 black soldiers, you know, participated. Uh, part of the reason why, um, uh, you know, even though I went back to college late in life, I, I thought I knew most of the wars, you know, and I had I missed this war completely, you know. And, I, I, and the more I saw it, um, I began to realize, you know, uh, the Spanish-American War lasted about three months, and they killed maybe, you know, just only a handful of Americans die, mostly from disease. But the Philippine-American War lasts three years, and it's a war of subjugation, and it's a war that's a lot like Vietnam. And so I got kind of intrigued at looking at it, and I saw the black soldiers served in it, so I got interested in looking at the black soldiers. And then when I was at Ohio State, I had to have something to write about, right? <laughs> and so I, uh, I, uh, I remembered that when I wrote my senior thesis, I remembered that the AME people were pretty vocal on both sides of the war. Some were for it and some were against it. And so I thought maybe... Uh, um, I could expand this, you know, I could look at, at, at what the AME said about uh, um, for, uh, international issues altogether. And so uh, Wilberforce was 60 miles, I went to Ohio State, and Wilberforce is 60 miles away. And uh, sure enough, I went to the archives there, and there was just this treasure of information there. What archives were they? Uh, the Wilberforce, the AME Church's archives um, are in Wilberforce, Ohio. That's where their uh, university is. Um, and so uh, once, I, uh, once I saw all of these, uh, I mean, I was blowing dust off of these records, right? No one had researched them <laughs> No one had used them. And I saw that not only they were uh, uh, concerned with, you know, the Philippine-American War, but they were concerned with international issues, you know, everywhere. You know, issues that had, to, especially that had to do with self-determination, issues that had to do with oppression. And, uh, and then I began to really, you know, search and and look at that, and I uh, became really interested in, in what they had to say about the various things going on in the world during that time. Now, you refer to AME a couple times, and for people who don't know, what is the African Methodist Episcopal Church? Well, the African Methodist Episcopal Church is the oldest black denomination of all of Christianity. It begins in, in 1816 as a denomination, 
but it can really trace its roots back to um, to really to 1789 is a, is a good year. Um, uh, uh, right then, uh, uh, Richard Allen, uh, who founded the church, who was a founder of the church, he and uh, several black uh, 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 leaders of the congregation. They are St. George's Episcopal down in Philadelphia had a had an integrated com congregation, and they made renovations. And when they made the renovations, they placed all of the black congregation in what they called, you know, at the time, Amen Corners. You know, so they segregated the black congregation. But the black congregation had, had helped to pay for these renovations, and so they were upset. And uh, uh, and so it, eventually, you know, they were treated rudely, and so um, the 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 church members got up and they walked out of the church and they uh, uh, went on a few years later um, to uh, found the Mother Bethel Church and, uh, in 1794. And then, um, and, and then in 1816, Richard Allen called Methodists from up and down the east, eastern seaboard, uh, Baltimore, uh, uh, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, called them all together to a conference and they formed um, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so it's a, it's a, it was a, 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 a stalwart black institution um, that really begins right at the birth of the nation. So the nation and the church be, really begin at the same time, even during, I mean, 1789, that's, you know, that's the Constitution, Constitutional Convention. And so um, all of, uh, you know, all of that's happening right at the same time. So as I say in the book, they're forged in the same embers, you know, those same democratic embers that, that really helped to forge the nation. You mentioned Mother Bethel Church. Where is that still standing? Okay, yeah, M Mother Bethel Church, founded in 1794. Uh, it's actually on the same site that it was on. It's on 6th and, and Lombard downtown, just a, sh a short walk away from uh, uh, Independence Hall. Um, it's on the same site. As a matter of fact, there's a, an old litho lithograph that shows um, it used to be a blacksmith shop, uh, and they had to actually take the blacksmith shop and carry it to the site that it's on now, right? And so there, there is this scene of, uh, and we're not really sure, we can't say 100% sure that it's the blacksmith shop, but there's this scene of this old lithograph that shows this blacksmith shop being uh, 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 transported past the, um, the uh, Independence Hall, right? And it's a great shot, you know, showing the mule carrying the, uh, the church, you know. And so it's been there since, uh, it's been in the exact same location since 1794. And it's, if you go there now, what do you see? Uh, well, you see, uh, you, you'll see, um, you'll see a, uh, uh, you'll see a, the AME Church, you'll see Mother Bethel Church. They also have a, a museum downstairs where, uh, you know, where they, where, you know, they have such a rich church history that there's, there's tons to see in the museum. Um, they have uh, 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 some, some, uh, some uh, um, some leftovers from uh, uh, from the Richard Allen era, you know, some um, you know, some some historical uh, artifacts that are, you know, it used to be a, a a site for the Underground Railroad, so all of that's still there, you know, so you can see the rooms where where the former slaves uh, used to uh, sit. They have a, a really good website. They're part of the Philadelphia Virtual Tour, right? And so they have a good website there. Um, and it's a it's a tourist attraction, you know. It's a it's a landmark, uh, a national landmark. 
Are services still held there? Oh, yes, services are held. Oh, yes, it's an active church. Oh, yeah, it's an active church. With an act it's, it's been an active church since 1794. Uh, so it's a... Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, you, you mentioned this gentleman, Richard Allen, who is credited with being the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. What can you tell us about him? Well, um, he's, a, uh, he's a former slave. Um, he, uh, 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 once again, brought up in the Revolutionary War era. He, he becomes a, a, a black preacher during the, the Great Awakening. You know, during the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening, that's when many uh, uh, slaves uh, first began to really embrace Christianity because uh, of the uh, evangelical uh, message that the Great Awakening uh, uh, brought forth, you know, kinds of messages that, you know, all people are equal unto God, that you can deserve salvation, those kinds of that are part of the Methodist doctrine, um, they were really uh, excited uh, uh, African Americans, uh, you know, slaves, in a way that, um, you know, that uh, some of the more established the denominations hadn't done. Uh, and they reached out for, for slaves as well. And so, uh, um, uh, as a slave, uh, Richard Allen um, became a preacher, uh, preaching Methodism, um, uh, and he was able to. Uh, in, you know, excite his master to the point where his master uh, allowed him to buy his freedom. And so for something like $2,000, uh, Allen was able to buy his freedom. Where was he a slave? In Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Slave here. You know, um, uh, uh, Philadelphia doesn't really abolish slavery until about 1780, which, of course, Pennsylvania is one of the first to abolish slavery. And it's a gradual abolition, but uh, 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 so it's which really puts Pennsylvania ahead of the curve, really. But um, he, uh, uh, he buys his, his freedom, and then he uh, really he joins the St. George's uh, uh, Methodist Church down in Philadelphia, the one that he eventually walked out of. And he really brought in a lot of black membership into the church. Part of the reason why they began to be segregated is because, uh, because of the larger black population that he brings in. Where was St. George Church? St. George is a, um, I'm not really sure, it's still there. It is still it there. It is still there, it's still an active congregation. Um, I think it's on, it's right on First Street. It's right there, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Philadelphia, it's right there uh, where Benjamin Franklin Bridge sort of uh, begins. Mm -hmm. You know, it's right along, uh, I'm saying First Street, I, I guess it's really Front Street. You know, right, right in that area, front end, and maybe, um, I want to say, uh, 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 Hallow Hill or something like that, you know, not right, right in the center city area. Though. Were integrated churches unusual in Philadelphia at the time? Well, yeah, well, none of the, well, it all depends on what you mean by integrated, okay. There were, uh, lots of churches were, were, especially the Methodists and the Baptists, they were, they were more uh, uh, embracing of African Americans. Um, not a lot of them were, they were integrated in, in a sense that, you know, they had uh, uh, black members and white members. But then many of the services were segregated, or or, uh, or the or the black congregation had to sit in what I what I call those amen corners. So um, uh, really, uh, uh, you know, integrated in a sense, but uh, uh, still segregation segregated within. Was Richard Allen a minister at the St. George Church? He was a preacher. He wasn't really an ordained minister. He didn't get ordained until until later. Did he ever? conduct or, or preach for a, 
an integrated audience or for oh, white yeah. audience? Oh, yeah, right. He brought in lots of white members, too. I mean, people came from all around. He was a wonderful speaker, you know, a wonderful preacher. And people came from all around to, uh, to hear him preach. He not only preached at St. George's, but he would leave St. George's and would preach at other churches during, you know, during Sunday. I mean, he, he preached three, four times uh, on any given Sunday at, at not only St. George's, but at other different churches as well. Uh, uh, mostly, too, to uh, a mixed con congregation, integrated con congregation. Right, so uh, a really popular, popular preacher, you know, really focused in on, on, on social issues because uh, once, they, uh, uh, once they leave St. George's, the first thing they, they you, know, you know, they leave St. George's in like 1789, but the Mother Bethel doesn't start until like 1794. But in 1789, they create what they call, right before they leave, they're not, they're about a couple of months before, they organized what's called the Free African Society, which is really, uh, uh, which provides social services to the black community. And so um, he's really active in providing services to the African American community here in Philadelphia that, you know, that black people weren't getting anyplace else. Yeah, so. Who made up the congregation? Um, now, I, I want to ask you something in here about, uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, Oh, yeah, you, you say here, as members of a black religious bourgeoisie, AME leaders had a vested interest in the American ideals, institutions, and cultures they had helped to produce. What do you mean by a black religious bourgeoisie? Okay, well, um, they're basically, especially, uh, I'm talking about in my era, okay? But even, even... Uh, 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 that, it's the, the turn of the 20th century? This, the turn, this, this is 100 years later yeah. than what I'm talking about okay. now. And, uh, they really became, become middle class, especially the bishops. I mean, the bishops, the, the hierarchy within the AME church is, is pretty much middle class. Uh, um, we would even call them elite uh, within that. They were definitely elite within the African-American community. And so they, they ascribe to uh, many of the same, well, they ascribe to all of the same values that that middle-class America uh, ascribes to. And so um, they see, they don't see the solutions to their problems anywhere but in the United States. And so they, 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 as a, uh, they say that this is our home, we realize that racism exists here, but we're going to solve our problems here. Now they disagree on how to solve those problems. <laughs> but uh, 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 so, so they have an interest in, in American society. They believe in ideals like liberty and and freedom and democracy, and so uh, they're going to they're going to work out their problems here. So that's kind of what I mean, middle class. You know, uh, I'm not I'm not really talking about the, the book doesn't really talk about uh, what the masses say. Uh, part of the reason is because the masses don't leave as as much of a record behind a written record as the elites do. And so I'm really focusing in on what the elites say, you know, uh, within the black community. And so they are a religious bourgeoisie. How big was the congregation in the beginning? Of the, of, of the AME church? Yeah. Of the Mother Bethel. Of Mother Bethel. Oh, yeah, Mother Bethel. Right, which predates the AME. Body. Right, exactly. Mother Bethel, I think, starts off with something like 20, 20, 20, 20 30 members. Uh, uh, but it, it, I know it goes up to over 100, right around 150 after the first two years. So, I mean, it, it grows rapidly. Um, they all, they have lots of problems with... Uh, the, uh, with St. George's because St. George's wants those 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 members back, right? And uh, so uh, 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 they don't really get fully independent from St. George's until uh, really the, a court has to rule. Um, and I think right around 
1815, the court rules that, uh, that indeed this is an independent church. They have the right to decide who their preachers are. They have a right to, you know, to uh, control their own affairs and that, that you know, that St. George ha has no rights. And, and so once that happens, then a year later, that's when he calls all the ministers, you know, and says, look what happened to us. We can do this all over the place, you know, and so they create the denomination. Can you talk about how that was, how that worked, how it was created, who came, well, how it was organized? Um, I can say uh, uh, it's, it's 1816, and uh, Richard Allen has put out a call to uh, members, uh, you know, AME. What, what happened in Philadelphia is being duplicated in other places, you know, up and down the eastern seaboard. Once again, the revolutionary spirit, the, uh, 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 the, um, uh, the Great Awakening, all of that is, is promoting ideas of freedom and equality and independence and all those kinds of things. And so it's, and one of the things that happens that, that uh, uh, in American society, I like to say that, well, I, I teach, when I teach my American history, I teach that American apartheid is a, is a northern invention, that you don't really need apartheid until you have large numbers of free African Americans. And you don't get large numbers, ironically, you don't get large numbers of free African Americans until the American Revolution, until 1790, because some slave owners are taking it to heart. You know, and, they, and so they're, they, they're, you know, they're setting their slaves free. The northern states, uh, states by now, are slowly uh, 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 you know, uh, passing gradual abolition. And so you're starting to see you know, larger numbers of, of, of free African Americans. And so with the larger numbers of free African Americans, uh, we begin to see this notion of, uh, of what we call the, uh, uh, the, Negro, um, uh, the, the Negro problem. Okay? And the Negro problem is simply that there are black people in the United States. <laughs> you know? And so the Negro problem leads to the Negro, uh, Negro question, right? What do we do with them? <laughs> you know? So one of the solutions is that we create apartheid and we segregate them, right? And so, so it's segregation is pushing part of this as, uh, as well. But also, on the other hand, there's this notion of being independent that's also pushing part of this. So you know, it's coming, it's coming from two angles. And so he, he sends a call out to, uh, to a Baptist I mean, to Methodist ministers up and down the uh, coast, and they come to Philadelphia and they meet. Actually, um, Allen's not, they don't. Allen's not the first elected bishop. He's the first bishop. But they actually elect a, a Daniel Coker from, um, from, uh, from Baltimore, and uh, he refuses to take it. He says, hey, look, this is Alice, you know, this is, uh, this is Alice, right? And so he steps down, and, lets, uh, and Alan becomes the first bishop, right? And uh, eventually, Coker actually goes over to Sierra Leone and starts a colony over there. Uh, or, or he doesn't start the colony, but he, you know, he, he uh, adds to the colony that's over there. Um, and, and, so you get, and so you get these black ministers coming here. They decide that first of, they, they decide to uh, adopt African as, as part of their name to, you know, to, to, you know, not only their heritage, but, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, well, basically their heritage. Um, and then they decide, you know, the discipline is going to remain Methodist. And then they're, they're also going to be uh, 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 hierarchical. And so it's going to be Episcopal, so it's going to be run by a bishop. So, and so they make all those decisions. They divide the nation up until I think right then it was maybe, maybe three conferences. 
During my time, yeah, and that's just different regions. What do you mean by hierarchical? I mean the bishops would oversee right. you going to have church? A, yeah, that, that's what, one of the things that really made this work, uh, my work, uh, so fascinating for me because um, not only was I, was I getting uh, uh, individual responses, responses of individual members, but I got this collective response that in, in many ways comes about because of the hierarchy. Um, the AME structure, uh, you have the bishops at, uh, up, at, you know, run, who run the, you know, uh, the day to day, day operation. Under that you have, um, you have the presiding elders. Under the presiding elders you have pastors and traveling ministers. But then you also have this conference system that uh, each region has uh, an annual conference. And in every four years they have a general conference. And the general conference has power above the bishops, right? And so, uh, you know, and also the general conference chooses the bishop. I might add that uh, this year, a uh, 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 general conference, every four years, they, so they had one this year. Uh, they always are the same year, the presidential election, so it really works out to, to remember them. <laughs> but uh, uh, they uh, elected the first bishop to the, to the uh, uh, first woman bishop, I should say, first woman bishop uh, to the Amy Church. And so that's a real great accomplishment for the church itself. But a uh, hierarchical, in each position, is elected. Even though they're ministers, you have to run for, for an election. And so every, every position except for the presiding elders. And so it was not only, uh, 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 so it was very political as well. And so, uh, and, and they would come together and they would, at these conferences and they would make collective decisions. And so that's what kind of fascinated me because it wasn't just this person saying this. Now it's this, we're saying this as the uh, Pennsylvania uh, or the Philadelphia Conference of the AME Church is saying this, which is a collective response. They had to vote and debate these things. How big is the AME Church today? You know, I, <laughs> I really don't don't know. You know, uh, uh, is it nationwide? Uh, oh yeah, that, oh it's international. It's international in, in, at the turn of the century. As a matter of fact, the the woman uh, uh, who got elected bishop is going to the. Uh, uh, they have a conference in in Africa. Well, they have two conferences: one in West Africa and one in South South Africa. I think she's going to the one in South Africa. So uh, there, there are places in Haiti. Uh, uh, there are uh, uh, congregations, um, you know, uh, uh, in many of the uh, uh, black islands in the Caribbean, you know, uh, and so uh, uh, Canada, of course, has uh, uh, congregations. And so it's a it's an international church. Uh, at, at the turn of when I uh, uh, during my uh, time at the turn of the century, there's about three quarters of a million who, who belong to the Amy Church. So, so. Uh, I, I imagine they've expanded <laughs> lots of stuff. Founded in Philadelphia, where is it headquartered now? Um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the first Episcopal. Well, <laughs> it's. Uh, is there a, a the worldwide first, headquarters for it? Well, it's, it's kind of it's a good question. The the financial uh, uh, offices are in Washington. The first district, Episcopal district, which is the Philadelphia district, which is pro pro probably conference, I should say, which is probably the most powerful. Um, is 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 still here in Phil well it's here in Philadelphia, um, but the intellectual center of course is is Wilberforce, and their publishing center is in Nashville. So it's you know there isn't I, I would say national office I would say Washington where the money is right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And would you describe Wilberforce again briefly? Wilberforce is um, uh, uh, um, a, a, 
right before the Civil War, um, the Methodist, uh, the regular Methodist church, had uh, opened up um, a, a black a college for black students uh, um, and at Wilberforce. And, uh, and eventually, the AME church, um, uh, right, uh, I'm not sure if it's before or after the Civil War, but right around that time, 1850s, 1860s, they buy it from the Methodist church, right? And so uh, it becomes really uh, a, a, a liberal arts college. It's really a liberal arts college, but it's also what they, uh, where they send their preachers or where they send their ministers. So, uh, you know, so, so that by the time uh, 1900 comes around, you know, uh, uh, they have uh, ministers who are really trained in the arts and, you know, who are, you know, who are well versed in, uh, in, uh, in the classics, you know, they, they, they can speak Latin, they can speak Greek, you know, uh, uh, and so they're really, really, uh, uh, really um, the elite, even the intellectual elite uh, of the community. Um, you're going to see uh, they have a ROTC program, and so uh, and so the first black uh, graduate, uh, well, maybe not the first, but black graduates from West Point uh, used to end up teaching there. You know, at the ROTC program, um, lots of uh, scholars have have taught there. Uh, it's really. Uh, one of the leading, especially during that period, it's one of the leading institutions. It's still fairly small, though, in size uh, compared to some other black colleges, but it's completely owned and run by the Indian Church. And there are archives there? Right, there are archives there, right. And uh, yeah, you, you'll find archives, for instance, in Mother Bethel, they have records down, in, uh, down there. Um, uh, the Pennsylvania Historical Society has some AME records. So you'll find AME records scattered in other places all around the country, but most of the records uh, are, are right there at, at Wilberforce. Part of the reason why is because, well, because it's the, it's the university, but um, one of the po more powerful ministers uh, who appears in my book by the name of Arnett, he lived there and he was a bit of a bibliophile. And so he kept, you know, he got copies of, you know, books all sorts of books, all sorts of, and he kept copies of records. He was the AME secretary for, for a good little while, and so he kept all the records, and so he, he got the records and he bound them. You know, he got, each, each of those annual conferences published uh, uh, their minutes. That's what I used for the, for the book. And mm -hmm. so he, would, he, he, got, he collected the, those minutes and he put them in, you know, he bound them and put them away. And, uh, and then 50 years later, I would divide, there they were. Oh, hey, look at this. <laughs> now, in, in fairness to you, we, we haven't talked about the subject of your book yet. And I want to get to that. But uh, first, a little bit about you. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Baltimore. I'm from, uh, you know, right down uh, 90 miles away. I'm from, uh, or what I like to call uh, Philadelphia South. <laughs> I, call, I call Philadelphia Baltimore Dwarf. So. <laughs> but I'm from uh, Baltimore, so I'm a southerner. Right. You said then, you went to college late. Yeah, I uh, uh, um, I was a uh, I was a purchasing agent for an insurance company um, after I, I went to Air Force in '69 and served four years. And I went out, got out of the Air Force, and I, I started in the stock room of uh, this insurance company. And uh, I worked for them for 13 years. And they bought this insurance company down in Atlanta, and they moved my position down to Atlanta. Right. And they said to me, they came to me and they said, Larry, they said, you know, we'd like for you to, uh, to uh, uh, go down to Atlanta 
but you can't get any more promotions. You can still get raises, but you can't get any more promotions because you don't have a college education. And not only do you not, not, not only do you don't have a college education, but we don't really know how you got to be a purchasing agent in the first place because the job I had called for a college education, right? And it's just that when somebody left, I took their place. Somebody left, I took their place. Somebody left, I took their place, right? And so uh, uh, I ended up being a purchasing agent, right, from the, from the stock room. And, uh, but then, uh, you know, when they were talking to me, I, I really didn't want to go to Atlanta. In a, you were in Baltimore still? I was in Baltimore, mm -hmm. right. I didn't want to go to Atlanta in this, um, in this dead-end position, you know, what appeared to be a dead-end position. And I said, well, if college education is so important, maybe I should get me one of those college educations. So I started college in 84. Where? Right, at, at Coppin State College. It's a small black uh, institution down in Baltimore. Uh, liberal arts school. I, I only only went there to uh, uh, get a certified in secondary education, uh, uh, and that which I did. But once I got out of there, uh, I got offered a fellowship to go to Ohio State. And, uh, and once I got there, I, I was only supposed to be in a master's program for one year. Studying what? Uh, history. You know, American history straight through. You know, and uh, once I got into the uh, master's. Well, when I got there, they told me, we've done away with the master's program. <laughs> you know, it was an accelerated one-year program, right? They said, we've done away with that program. They said, but uh, we'll let you be the last person to go through on it, right? But, um, but what we'd rather you do is go ahead and sign up for the Ph.D. program, right? And I said, well, do you have, do you have money? <laughs> they said, yeah, we got money. And I said, okay, I'll sign up. <laughs> you know, so I signed up for the, for the, for the, for the program. And, uh, and then I uh, 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 spent four years there, and, and then uh, Villanova, uh, uh, when I graduated with a PhD, Villanova uh, offered me the position. And so I never did get to teach the high school. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Even though now I go into high schools and as much as possible, and I work a lot with high school teachers as much as possible because I, you know, I am trained and certified in secondary ed, so I understand how, you know, I guess, how high school teachers think. <laughs> Like How old were you when you finished college? I uh, finished, um, when I finished Coppin? Yeah. I finished Coppin uh, in 89, so I was 39. And I, then? I finished uh, Ohio State in 43. Um, I, not in 43. I was 43 when I finished Ohio State. So I finished that in 93. So, uh, and I've been, so I'm an academic baby, really. <laughs> <laughs> so you teach at Villanova history. Yeah, right. What teach, courses are you teaching? I teach, uh, uh, teach uh, African-American history. Um, uh, uh, first half uh, and second half, a teacher uh, up to 1877 and from 1865. So it's during slavery and since slavery. I teach um, a course on civil rights. I teach a course on uh, racism in the Americas. I teach a course on, uh, I'm doing a, a course with uh, English professor Crystal Lucky. Um, we're doing, uh, we're looking at African American images in film and literature. We're going to look at a movie and read a book. In the, talk about those, whatever comes up. Um, so I, I usually teach, you know, I, I, I also teach a, a, a modern world history course as well uh, that's required for all of our freshmen. So I, I essentially teach, I teach black history to white students, having a ball doing it. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just absolutely wonderful, you know. It's uh, because I, uh, you know, I, I lived in the inner city all my life, you know, I mean, 39 years, <laughs> you know, until I left to go to Ohio State, right? I lived in the inner city, right? And so, uh, 
So that's the life that I, I knew that I understood. And so, um, and so I come, I guess I, I, I got to Villanova in a non-traditional way of getting to Villanova. And so I see the world uh, perhaps a little different than what the students are used to seeing the world, which, uh, which is good because that way I can get to teach them. But they also see the world a lot different from the way I see the world. So they get to teach me. So it works out perfect. <laughs> you know, I teach them, they teach me. And so everybody gets happy, you know. Is teaching at a college level what you expected it to be? Um, yes, I, I, think, I think it is. It's, it's a, it actually is more fulfilling and more rewarding than I expected it to be. You know, uh, like I said, I was, I, I was geared up to teach at the secondary level, and then I kind of, I guess I backdoored my way into, uh, into at the college level, but um, yes, it's 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 definitely uh, it's, it's it's definitely fulfilling and it's it's re really rewarding and it's challenging. I mean, uh, uh, teaching Black history to uh, to white students, uh, I, uh, I often have to confront my own racial attitudes, you know, and and so uh, uh, very often, uh, you know, uh, my my own attitudes are challenged and. Uh, Sometimes I don't like what what comes up, you know, and uh, and and so I've I've seen myself grow. For instance, um, uh, 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 students always tell me they say, "Well, racism is generational, right?" They say it's generational. They say, "My parents, our parents are not as uh, we're not as racist as our parents. Our parents aren't as racist as our grandparents, right?" And so I say to them, "Okay, so what would your what would your parents do if you brought?" You know, somebody black home and said, Dad, Mom, this is my boyfriend or this is my girlfriend. And then I asked the black students, what would you do? What, you know, what do parents do if they, they uh, uh, if you brought somebody white home? And so we discuss it and they usually, uh, they usually would uh, uh, say that, oh, well, my parents, they might be a little upset and they, you know, but they would eventually, they pull me to the side and they would, uh, you know, tell me all the things that might go wrong. But then they would eventually come around and accept it, right? Uh, our parent, our grandparents, however, would kill us, <laughs> you know, take us out and shoot us, you know, take us out of the will, <laughs> you know, absolutely never don't say anything else to us, you know. And, and so I'd go around the room and we talk, you know, ask a couple of different students that, you know. And then after I've gone around the room, they turn around and they look at me and they say, well, Professor Little, what would you do if your daughter brought somebody white home and said, hey, Hey, Dad, this is my boyfriend, right? So uh, for the first three or four years, I would look at him and say, well, it's generational. <laughs> you know? And I'm from the same generation that your friends are from, right? But, but in the last two, two, to, two to three years, I can say that my answer has honestly changed, that, um, that now, as long as they don't ask me to co-sign for anything, <laughs> no, it's okay. That's the bigger problem. <laughs> right. It doesn't mean anything. And that comes from me being with these Villanova students and realizing that even though we're, we were brought up miles apart, we really aren't that, that, that much different. Your students feel comfortable discussing these issues, or is there? Or do they have to warm up to it over the course of the semester? I try, I try to. Well, I try to. Once I try to make them comfortable because uh, I try to be honest. I ask them questions. They always tell me, Professor, look, that question is not fair. I say, Yeah, I know it's not fair. <laughs> That's why I asked it. <laughs> you know, so I'm always asking them unfair questions. But um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I usually 
Uh, one of the things I learned, I don't know if I should say this on camera because this is one of my tricks, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't want to give it away. <laughs> but, uh, uh, well, I learned that on a Roman Catholic campus, you know, uh, Villanova's Roman Catholic, right, a little confession goes a long way. And so uh, one of the things that happened to, to me in my own personal experience is uh, when I was at, uh, 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 I used to go around telling people that uh, uh, I was a feminist, right? I'm a feminist, right? I, uh, I'm a feminist because I fight sexism everywhere, no matter what. Now, there might be some issues of sexuality that I don't understand. But other than that, I'm a feminist, right? And so, uh, but then uh, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hit, right? And not so much Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, but in the aftermath of Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, women were coming on television and explaining what sexism was. And they were saying, sexism is this. And I said, I do this. <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> so, you know, I'm running around telling people that I'm a feminist and I still have sexist attitudes. You know, I didn't have sexist beliefs because I believed that women could do anything that men could do, but I still had attitudes. And of course, attitudes accounted for behavior. And so once those women informed me that I had sexist attitudes, then I had to change those attitudes and I had to change those behaviors. So one of the things that I, I, I do to try to relax the students, I tell them that story and let them say, hey, look, you know, and I fight, and I, I no one would say that I'm a feminist. I say I'm a sexist, and I fight it every single day to try to stop from being that way, you know, because it's part of, it's an attitude, and it's an attitude I don't, don't like. And so I have to, you know, have to try to control that. I have to try to eliminate that. And so, you know, I, I don't claim to be a, well, I'm not sexist, but I, uh, uh, I know that it, it's it's there, you know, and it can be, come to the surface, and so I try to try to uh, stop that from coming to the surface. And so when they start to understand, and they begin to realize that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, I, I try to be totally honest with them, and I, they they know that I will never slam them. You know, their classmates might slam them, right? But I will never slam them, right? And so they become they become really more comfortable, and. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I bring a sincerity to the classroom, too, that, that they pick up on real quick, too, because I'm really I'm sincere about the, the issue. You know, I tell people that I'm at Villanova to, uh, to help to uh, fight racism. You know, I, tell, I tell everybody, as soon as they walk into the class, I tell them, I got an agenda. <laughs> you know, so this is history according to, well, me. <laughs> okay, now, so that means that you have to take what I say and you have to take what you read, everything with a grain of salt. You have to be critical of what I say. You have to be critical of what you read. You have to make your own types of decisions, you know, based on, on, your, on your own values. And so, um, uh, uh, so I let them know right away that I, I teach my history geared toward trying to expose and to and eliminate racism. And, 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 and so, um, How's it going? Well, great! It really is. I'm, I'm having a ball. You know. Do you feel like you're making progress in that? Do you feel is, oh, the, is, yes. the, is the nation making progress in that? Uh, well, <laughs> tough question. Um, you know, I I have an optimism that uh, I I know that that uh, maybe some of my colleagues might not have. Um, part of my optimism, I, I, I really comes from working with the students. Uh, I can see, you know, I. I know I, I don't reach every student, and, uh, and uh, even though I try to reach every student, but I can see changes. I can see them starting to question, 
you know, some of their own, you know, some, some of the things that they, they took for granted. You know, I, and for me, you know, um, I think, especially for, for our students, because I realize that the Villanova students will be the movers and the shakers <laughs> sooner or later, right? And so if I can, you know, if I can just plant a seed that, that says to, to them that, you know, that some of the way that African Americans and other people have been treated in this country um, hasn't always been the way that history has portrayed it, that, that, then I think, I, I, I think it, it has made a difference. Now, as a nation as a whole, um, I think, I, I still think we have a lot of problems in the nation, you know. But I think that one of the things that we need to do is we really need to be honest with each other. Sometimes we're not really honest with each other. And it's difficult because race is a difficult question. Uh, it's a difficult, it's very controversial, it's very, uh, it's challenging. And people don't want to confront it very often. You know, uh, one of the things that I, <laughs> one of the things that I say to my students is, I look at it and say, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me try to understand something. We've been here since 1619. You've been here since 1619? Well, 1607, I'll give you a few years. You've been here since 1607. I've been here since 1619. How come I have light-skinned people in my family and you don't have any dark-skinned people in your family, right? <laughs> Explain that to me. How, why is that like that, you know? And that, so that, and that opens up a, a dialogue that, that we really begin to try to look at. Why, why, why is it? Why, is, why does that exist, you know? And it creates a dialogue that, uh, 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 that really gets the students to wondering about, you know, about issues of race and, and racism. You know, I, I really don't think race is the problem. It's racism is the problem. You know? you know, um, and, uh, and so you know, uh, um, whether, if it's getting better, I, I think it's, it is getting better. But I think it's an awful long way to, way to go. You know? um, uh, and uh, and I, I, I personally am optimistic. I refuse to be pessimistic. I couldn't teach at Villanova if I were pessimistic. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really optimistic. I, and I think I am making a, 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 some differences, you know, um, here and there. You know, I'm giving uh, the keynote address for our fall convocation uh, I, so I get to talk to everybody at one time. And I, I know that's something that, uh, you know, different for Villanova to have. Uh, a black professor speaking before the whole university. Something, something different, something new. <laughs> so. We should probably talk about your book before we run out of time. Yeah, looks uh, nice. <laughs> the title is um, Disciples of Liberty, African Methodist Episcopal Church in the Age of Imperialism. What's the age of imperialism? Well, um, I look at the age of imperialism in this book. I, I, I really define the age of imperialism from about 1884 to 1916. And the age of imperialism is characterized by this really this burst of, of activity by industrial nations, uh, uh, England, France, uh, United States, Germany, Italy, uh, Japan. Uh, these industrial nations are going around uh, conquering, you know, uh, uh, less advanced nations all across the globe. Um, part of the reason, of course, is economics. Part of it is to control the resources of the land. But during this period, it almost becomes a goal to itself. You know, why are you conquering that land? You know, why are you conquering this deserted island? <laughs> you know, there's only, there's only 50 people live on the island. Why do you conquer that? Because to make that part of my empire. The more I have, the, lot, the better, better my empire is. And so this, we see this burst of activity right before World War I. 
As a matter of fact, there are some scholars who, who think it's this burst of activity that really helped to lead to World War I because they come in competition with each other, you know. England claims this, land, this island, Germany claims this island, both of them send a gunship to this island. <laughs> you know, they come into this confrontation. And so I look at that, that, that phenomena that's going on during that time, which is really a part of a larger imperialism. What was the United States' involvement in imperialism at the time? Well, the United States really gets involved with the Spanish-American War. The United States is late in the game, uh, uh, and they, they get involved with the Spanish-American War. Um, once uh, uh, at the end of the Spanish-American War, the United States ends up with, with new territories. Uh, they end up with territories in, uh, in Cuba, in Puerto Rico. They end up with the Philippines. They end up with Guam. And so uh, you begin to see the United States building an empire, right? And of course, that goes against the Constitution of the United States because you're controlling other people without their permission. And of course, that's, that's a, you know, that's a violation of American principle. And so you have Americans who are violating their own principles of, of democracy and, and liberty and equality. Um, and so how do you reconcile that? And so that's, and especially for African Americans who are, who, uh, uh, who believe in liberty and equality and think that these people of these foreign lands should have those same liberty and, uh, the same liberty and equality, um, it really creates this this problem for them because they know that this American liberty and this American equality is going to be accompanied by American racism. And so uh, it becomes a real problem for them to reconcile. And so I look at, that's what part of what I look at in here is that, is how they try to uh, reconcile that. So what is the AME Church's involvement? Okay. Well, um, uh, uh, mostly as, uh, as observers, but more, more than observers, they're, they're actually trying to you know, especially in, 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 in nations, what they consider black nations, places like Haiti, places like Puerto Rico, places like Cuba, and nations of color like the Philippines uh, within the American empire, is they're really trying to influence American policy, and they're trying to, uh, uh, they're, they believe in American democracy, and they want American democracy to come to those places, but they don't want American democracy to come to those places accompanying racism. I mean, with, you know, with racism. And so they, are, uh, they continually try to remind American society of American principles. And, uh, and so uh, you're, you're, you're going to see them being, taking an active role in missionary efforts uh, in these lands uh, uh, that are being conquered. But it's a hard sell because uh, if I'm black and I'm, telling you need, and I'm telling somebody of color of a different land that you need to embrace American democracy and American liberty, and that person looks at me and says, well, in, in American society, don't they lynch you, <laughs> you know? And so it becomes a, 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 a difficult sell. And so part of what they're trying to do is they're trying to be protectors of these people of, um, of foreign lands that are coming into the American empire. And they're, at the same time, they're trying to be uh, uh, um, sort of like a moral barometer or something for, uh, for the nation itself to say, hey, you know, you can't conquer a people and, and bring this racism in there because uh, you've got enough problems here, right, right here. How did they go about communicating that message? Um, they have a communication network that they, that they set up. They have, uh, well, the, those annual conferences, um, they, have a, uh, uh, they have a weekly um, 
newspaper, several weekly newspapers, but one main newspaper coming out of Philadelphia, the Christian Recorder, uh, 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 oldest black newspaper continuously running. Uh, um, it's still published? Still published. And then they have the AME Church Review, which was a, a, a quarterly magazine. But they would send, uh, at those conferences that I'm talking about, right, they would send, uh, you know, the conference would, you know, vote on a resolution, and they would send a resolution to, uh, to Congress, or they would send the resolution to, uh, to the president, you know, and uh, uh, I've got uh, uh, some examples of replies to those resolutions, you know. So uh, they would, you know, send resolutions and memorials to, uh, and petitions to Congress, you know, stating their point of view and, and their goal. And so it's really... Um, uh, uh, trying to use propaganda to, do, to influence, uh, you know, uh, uh, how dare you condemn France in the Dreyfus Affair. France is wrong, but you have no right to condemn France because look what you're doing. You know, so, you know, we can condemn France, <laughs> you know, but you have no right to condemn France, right? So, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're uh, using that, that communication network that they create to help, help to... Uh, 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 get that message out. And like I said, they send petitions and memorials and uh, resolutions to Congress all the time. <laughs> you know? Is there any evidence that they were effective? <laughs> that's, the, that's the tough question. That's the tough question. You know, um, you know, uh, uh, you know it's, it's really difficult to, to, to answer that because, uh, you know, uh, United States continues to be an imperial power all the way up until, uh, well, there are some who would suggest that the United States continues to be an imperial power. Um, the, 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 the thing that, the way I like to answer that is that, um, you know, without their voices, without the voice of dissent in, in this country, then it may have, uh, uh, you know, there's no telling what the nation may have done, but by them uh, being a part of a chorus, because it's not just them who are who are, who are making these, uh, you know, who are, who are, who are having this, these positions. There are there are white Americans also who have these same same positions, and so they are part of a chorus that comes together to condemn American uh, uh, actions. And so, uh, how effective they are, it's it's really difficult to say. But you know, um, I like to think that in, in many ways they still were the conscience of the nation and. and some ways they, you know, they stopped American society from going perhaps too far. How many black voters were there at the turn of the century? Well, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a, um, you know, that's a regional kind of an issue because, uh, you know, in, in the South they're really you know, being disfranchised after 17, I mean, after 1880, you know, the numbers of black voters in the South goes down real fast so that by, by 1900 it's really not even a factor. In, in 1900, though, in the northern states, there is a, a, a talk uh, um, among African-American leaders that um, black voters held um, a pivotal, held the swing vote in, in several key northern industrial states, places like Ohio, places like Pennsylvania, where African-Americans are still, still going to uh, vote, uh, Michigan, Illinois, all key industrial states. You're going to see uh, New York. You're going to see a, 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 a good number of, of African American voters, and in some in some key elections, they do have a, a pivotal vote. And, and so you're going to see that uh, uh, not so much in the South, but in the North, they're going to be courted by both Democratic and 
Republican Party. Of course, most African Americans belong to the Republican Party then, you know, because uh, it's the party of Lincoln, right, and the Democratic Party uh, disfranchising them in the South. And, uh, and so, uh, but in the North is a, is a different, especially in urban areas, places like New York City and Philadelphia, where that Democratic machine is starting to be built, you know, uh, uh, that Democratic machine reaches out to uh, African Americans and, you know, in, in many instances provides some services. And so, you know, uh, the vote is pretty solidly Republican, but you can see pockets of, uh, of African Americans who are, there are black Dem Democrats in the North, you know, so, um, you know, in, in, in some instances they, you know, I, I won't say that they are the swing vote, but there's, they, they do make a block, so they do make a, a difference in some elections. Did black voters in the North see a conflict between their support for the Republican Party and at the time it was President McKinley during the Spanish-American mm -hmm. War and Theodore Roosevelt immediately after that and, and the expansionist policies that that's, they had? That's what the book is about. <laughs> that's because they understand that it's, this is, that's their problem. The party that's doing this <laughs> is also the party that they rely on, <laughs> and so you, so, so I mean, and for instance, one, and one guy says, uh, you know, we got, we got a choice, you know, it's a choice of dilemmas, you know, we, you know, do we go for the racist party that subjugates black people in America, or do we go for the racist party that subjugates people of color, you know, around the world, you know, and so uh, it becomes a dilemma there. When you say in the book that there was some talk of starting a an African-American or a, a black American all black. party. Oh, yeah, there's, there's talk about uh, uh, um, of creating this all-black party. Um, some talk, uh, uh, a couple of organizations like the Afro-American League, uh, which later becomes the Afro-American Council, sort of becomes. But um, they are, uh, part of their goal is, is to work toward, or part of, the founder's goal uh, uh, was to work toward creating a political party, or, or at the very least, for all African Americans to gather in a convention and decide who is going to get the black vote. <laughs> of course, that's, uh, uh, that's kind of wishful thinking because African Americans uh, have a range of opinions, just like so to say that who's going to get the black vote is really kind of, uh, I don't know, that's standing on shaky ground in the first place, right? We only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to read off a couple of names who appear prominently in this book and just get you to give a little kind of a thumbnail biography of them, if you would. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Wright? Uh, Richard Wright is a, um, he, is a uh, he becomes a bishop later in, 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 uh, um, in, the, in the book. Well, he doesn't become a bishop in the book, but he come, becomes later in his career. He is a... Uh, um, he is, he becomes the AME historiographer, and he's really a very political person. What's a historiographer as opposed to a historian? It's a historian. <laughs> oh, it's just a longer word. It's just a longer word, right. I couldn't quite figure that one out either. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they call their, that's what they call their historian. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say a historiographer is somebody who, who studies uh, uh, what different people, what different historians write. But that's not how they would define it. Mm -hmm. He's the historian, right? Um, uh, a pretty, uh, uh, once again, very political guy. You know, uh, uh, 
know, very political guy. He's not one of the ones I know too much about. Give, give me another one. <laughs> and he's around 1900? He's around, right around 1900. Um, Henry Turner? Henry Turner, Henry McNeil Turner. He is, he is perhaps one of the most charismatic members of the church during this time. He leads a Back to Africa movement. He's a black nationalist. He says that uh, anybody who would go, go to fight in the Philippines, uh, any black person who goes to fight in the Philippines is a, is a fool or a, or a scullion. You know, and he hopes that, he, that they're fools, right? Uh, he opposes McKinley. He's out for the Democrats. Um, uh, uh, very, much, uh, uh, very much a black nationalist. He wants to go over to Africa and create a black Christian nation that can be, um, that can be a shining example of the cap uh, capacity, the capability of African Americans to govern themselves. So he's probably the most radical figure within the AME church. Uh, Benjamin Tanner. Benjamin Tanner, Philadelphian. <laughs> Philadelphia. Uh, theological. Very theological. Uh, he spends lots of time trying to show the black figures within the Bible. Once again, uh, very political. Uh, there's a new book out by him, uh, uh, about him by uh, 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 Seville over in, uh, to turn the book over? Yeah, uh, it's the very first one. Let's see, what is it? Fire in His Heart, William Surreal. Um, uh, has a, a new biography out about him. Um, once again, God is black. I mean, not, not God is black, but many of the, uh, he believes that uh, uh, Ham is black, therefore. therefore the son of Noah. Son of Noah, Ham mm -hmm. is black, therefore, if Ham is black, then Canaan is black, and, and Mizram and Put, well, sons of, uh, of Ham are all black. And, and so you create a, this whole black uh, biblical genealogy. And he, he does that. He looks at that, and he, look, he, he looks at uh, he tries to place Africans within biblical history and within biblical genealogy. And he's he was also, the father of Henry O. Tanner, the right, artist. Right, the, the artist. He's father of Henry O. Tanner, the artist. And he's also founder of the uh, of the AME uh, Church Review, uh, as well. And he's uh, and he was longtime uh, 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 editor of the of the Christian Recorder of the newspaper. He really put the newspaper on. In good standing. There's a couple more names I want to ask you about, well, but we are running out of time. Okay. We only have about a minute left, and oh, we started okay. off talking about the Philippine-American War. Can right. you give us about a 45-second description of who fought who in the Philippine-American War? Okay, uh, in the United States, uh, it, it, at the, when the Spanish-American break, War breaks out, already the Filipinos have an insurgent action against Spain. And once the United States declares war, the Filipinos think that the United States is going to become their allies. Well, what happens is that the United States buys the Philippines. He eventually ends up buying the Philippines. You know, the Filipinos have declared independence. Now, they don't have anything to do with this independence declared by the Philippine insurgents. And so even though they were really kind of allies during the Spanish-American War, um, once you, Philipp, the United States takes over the Philippines, um, an insurgent action begins against the United States by the same people who were fighting Spain. It lasts for about three years in a war that's really a whole lot like Vietnam. It's, it's our first Vietnam. Part of the reason why it's not, very, it's not a very popular war. You know, it's not a splendid little war. You working on another book? Uh, I'm looking at, right now, I'm looking at uh, political cartoons in uh, black newspapers during the Civil Rights era. You know, so I have to, that way I don't have to write a whole lot. 
I can just say, look at figure four. <laughs> this is the book we've been talking about, Disciples of Liberty, the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the Age of Imperialism. Lawrence Little, thank you very much. All right. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.